name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, Res. Welcome. My name is Father Ryan. I'm the acting rector here at, at Resurrection South Austin. Uh, if you're new to Resurrection, if this is your first time here, we want to extend a special welcome to you this morning. Please come find us after the service, or we'll find you. Uh, we want to make sure that you feel especially welcome uh, as we worship together this morning. Uh, last year, if you were here, you, you might have listened in on the sermon and noticed that I went all in on the idea that Luke's gospel has everything to do with fulfillment. It might have been a little too far. I like talked about it a lot, right? Uh, Luke's whole purpose in writing his gospel is to bear witness to the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament and its creation and covenantal history in the person of Jesus. And Luke 4, which we talked about last week, is the key to understanding the entirety of Luke's gospel. Luke 4 says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is the key to understanding all of Luke. So as we, as we hear from the Gospel of Luke this morning, remind, just be re- reminded of this Uh, this verse in Luke 4. And right after this, Jesus proclaims, today this reading is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus announces that he is the very Messiah King that the people of Israel were waiting for. The one who would come and do what they could not do. This fulfillment narrative is one of the major themes in the Gospel of Luke, and it comes back around in our text today. I don't know if you heard it, though, because it was kind of hidden, actually. You wouldn't actually have heard it uh, as Deacon Courtney proclaimed it this morning, because unless you're like a, a seminary student who's reading things in the original Greek, you wouldn't have actually heard it in our reading today. In our opening verse, verse 51, it says, When the days drew near to be, for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. There's so much that is packed in this one little verse that it deserves some of our attention this morning. First, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, or as the NIV translates it, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven. Both of these translations in verse 51 have this description of a time that was drawing near or approaching, right? Something was happening in their midst, or something was soon going to happen. In the Greek itself, though, this is where we get it. In the Greek itself, the better translation for this passage is, as the days were being fulfilled. That's the actual verb here. As the days were being fulfilled. Luke cannot get away from this fulfillment language. There's so much more happening here than just the passage of time. And this isn't just a simple literary turn of phrase to transition us from one section of Luke to another. No, once again, Luke here is intentional with his fulfillment language. Everything that was happening in their midst, even time itself, is steeped with this deep sense that God was at work here. In this sense, you could say that Luke's gospel account is deeply sacramental. As the days were being fulfilled. There is nothing throwaway for here for Luke. 
As I said last week, Luke has no interest in writing mere history here. This is a gospel narrative that is steeped in a kingdom that has come so very close for them. It is a thin place for the gospel of Luke. It assumes the reality that we pray every week when we pray the Lord's Prayer. When we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is heaven breaking into the world, sacramental storytelling that we get from Luke here. And I think it's important to pause Because though this isn't the main focus of our passage this morning, I just want to point out how critical it is for us to read the Gospels in the same way that Luke wrote them, or wrote his Gospel. Eugene Peterson says it in his book, Tell It Slants, that in the Gospels, Jesus wasn't so much handing out information as he was reshaping our imaginations. And I bet Luke would be like, yeah, that's exactly what I was doing. As the days were being fulfilled, Luke is inviting us into a deeper sacramental imagination here. A few years ago, I was looking, back to, uh, looking to get back into reading fiction as a hobby. This was like in the, in the days when Thaddeus, our son, was like three to four years old. So all of the fiction that I was reading at the time was like Pete the Cat and Daniel Tiger, and things like that. So I was, like, looking to get back into, like, some adult fiction, right? And I was, like, just, I had a friend who recommended to me reading fantasy novels. I'd never really read fantasy novels before, except for maybe, like, the Lord of the Rings series. So my friend recommended a few books to get, to get started, and I dove into this genre and ended up kind of getting slightly obsessed with it a little bit. I'm not, like, so deep into it where I've got, like, elf costumes at home or anything like that, but I definitely consider myself, like, a fantasy enthusiast nowadays. And a big reason for why I think I really dove so deeply into fantasy novels is because they cultivate an imagination beyond just the ordinary, plain sense of things. They help us shape our imagination, and I think this is how we can approach the Bible as well, that it... The Bible isn't something that is just a plain reading. It, the Bible is intended to be read to shape our imaginations. There's something deeper going on here. And as we learn how to read the Scriptures in this way, with this deeper sacramental imagination, it actually shapes how we see the world with new eyes. Just as there's more going on in the text, there's more going on in our worlds. And in our lives than what our plain eyes can see sometimes. We need our imaginations to be shaped by this sacramental heaven coming to earth reality of the kingdom of God. Don't we? In our, in our world today, as we make sense of our world, we need to see this kingdom of God reality in our midst. Put simply, we need to be formed to, be, to both read scriptures and to see in our lives and in our worlds all of the places where God is really at work, even when things look bleak. Peterson makes this same point in Tell It Slant when he says that the kingdom of God life that we bear as Christians is not a matter of waking up each morning with a list of chores or an agenda that the Holy Spirit gave us in the middle of the night. We wake up already immersed in a large story of creation and covenant, of Israel and Jesus, the story of Jesus and the stories Jesus told. And we let 
ourselves be formed by these stories. As we read the Bible, we realize that we are a part of a story even now, even today. All right, so we've made it through the first half of the first verse of our passage today, so we should probably get going. Uh, The second half of this verse in chapter 9 marks a huge turning point for the Gospel of Luke. Up until this point, Jesus had been traveling around Galilee, teaching and healing and announcing the kingdom of God. But now in Luke 9, verse 51, we witness a shift in Jesus. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Suddenly, Jesus is resolved to go to Jerusalem. Jesus becomes laser-focused on the task ahead of him to submit himself to this journey that would ultimately lead to his death. Just a few verses earlier in Luke, Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration. And what is he doing on the Mount of Transfiguration with Moses and Elijah? He's talking about his departure. And here in the same chapter, just a few verses later, we see Jesus resolutely attach himself to that departure. He sets his face towards Jerusalem. He sets his face to the path that leads to the cross. And as 1 John proclaims, we are reminded once again that by this we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us. There was no distracting Jesus from his mission At the heart of his mission, this missio Dei, the mission of God, was this journey to Jerusalem to offer up his life for the sake of the world. So this was no mere account in our history books of a man who heroically gave up his life as an example for others. In Jesus setting his face to go to Jerusalem, we encounter nothing less than the cruciform self-offering love that resides at the very heart of God. This is being revealed. By this, we know what love is. Driven by this love, Jesus binds himself to the, da- to the task set before him, to the journey to the cross. The rest of this passage must be read in light of this verse 51. Everything flows from this turning point in the Gospel of Luke. In the first encounter Jesus and the disciples have on the road to Jerusalem, they come across this village of Samaritans. And if you're not familiar with Samaritans, they were an ethnic and religious group that were descended from the northern tribes of Israel, but were considered outsiders to the Jews. And so there's great animosity between these two ethnic groups in and around Israel. This is why we have stories like the Samaritan woman at the well and the the parable of the Good Samaritan, why those stories were so evocative because of this animosity. The Samaritans were hated by the Jews, which is why it's no surprise that Jesus and the disciples were rejected at the Samaritan village. But it's also no surprise as as to why James and John immediately react by wanting to call down fire from heaven to consume the village. Jesus' whole mission to Jerusalem is going to be marked by rejection to the point of death. And here in this very first moment of rejection... James and John want to call down fire. Think about that. This is the way of the world. And we see this, these same kind of vengeful and hate-filled reactions in our world today, don't we? 
like the Jewish and Samaritan ethnic conflict of old. We live in a world today that is full of difference and conflict. Now more than ever, it feels like. And underneath the surface, underneath the surface of this all, this is the same kind of conflict that we see with James and John. It feels like we live in a world that is hungry for power and for violence, just like James and John wanted to call down fire upon this village. The instinct to enact violence on our enemies is nothing new, though. And Jesus, who had set his face to Jerusalem, turned and rebuked the disciples for this sentiment. You see, Jesus wasn't interested in actually destroying his enemies or lording power over them like James and John wanted to do. The ends never justify the means for Jesus. His way was the way of Jerusalem, the way of the cross. Jesus wasn't interested in destroying the Samaritan village. He wanted to save it. If you look in the footnotes of your Bible, you'll see that for this passage, there's actually an additional line in some manuscripts that says this, for the Son of Man came not to destroy people's lives, but to save them. And so Jesus and the disciples went on their way after Jesus rebukes James and John. And this last section of our gospel reading for this morning, the last portion of what Deacon Courtney proclaimed this morning in the gospel it's all about discipleship and kingdom. And as they were traveling along the road, we encounter three different accounts of people who wanted to come to Jesus and follow him. And Jesus' response to all three of these disciples reminds us of the cost of following Jesus in our lives. And all of these scenarios, they actually had to do with home and family, if you read closely enough. Jesus is crystal clear here. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Do you want to know what following Jesus is like? It'll sometimes feel like you don't have a home. Sometimes following Jesus feels like you don't have a home. You don't have a place to lay your head. And don't we often feel like that in the world? Jesus calls us to follow him in the midst of that. And the second and third responses of Jesus leave the dead to bury their own dead. But for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And no one wants to put his hand, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. In these interactions, Jesus is calling us to a singular allegiance to himself and to the arriving kingdom of God. Allegiance to Jesus comes before all else in life before allegiance to family, before allegiance to nation, before allegiance to anything else that might demand our attention. Allegiance to Jesus and his kingdom is the cost of discipleship. And this allegiance is not easy in our day. Bonhoeffer wrote about the cost of discipleship. He wrote, it, he wrote a whole book on it, and he explained it in this way. It's a little bit of a longer reading, but I think it's so, so good, so I wanted to share it with you. He says, to be called to this way of life is a narrow way. To confess and testify to the truth as it is in Jesus. And at the same time, to love the enemies of the truth, his enemies and ours, and to love them with the infinite love of Jesus Christ is indeed 
a narrow way. To believe the promise of Jesus that his followers shall possess the earth and at the same time to face our enemies unarmed and defenseless. Preferring to incur injustice rather than to do wrong ourselves is indeed a narrow way. To see the weakness and wrong in others and at the same time refrain from judging them. To deliver the gospel message without casting pearls before swine is indeed a narrow way. The way is unutterably hard. And at every moment we are in danger of straying from it. But if we behold Jesus Christ going on before step by step, we shall not go astray. And this is the beauty of our passage in Luke today. The cost of discipleship that Jesus invites us into is the same cost that he took up himself when he set his face to Jerusalem. Jesus had counted the cost and remained steadfast in his journey. And Jesus is not asking us to go anywhere that he was not willing to go himself. The cost for Jesus was ultimately his death on the cross for the sake of the world. And this cross, as Bonhoeffer reminds us, is laid on every Christian. As we embark upon discipleship, our allegiance is with Christ in union with his death. We give our lives over to death. That's what we're called to. This is what marks our lives in our baptism. Every time we baptize someone here at Res, we proclaim that in the waters of death, we are buried with Christ in his death. That's the cost of discipleship. And I've been thinking about this this week, this cost of discipleship. As we follow Jesus and our allegiance to Jesus and his kingdom that we find in our passage from today, I just have a question that I want to put before all of us this morning. What allegiances might be coming in the way for you and following Jesus right now in your life as you have it? What is the cross that is being laid on you today? We are living as Jesus did in the days that were being fulfilled. God is at work in our world just as he was at work in the Gospel of Luke. And Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. And we are called to do the same And as we do follow Jesus on this journey, on this road to Jerusalem, on this road to the cross, let us be reminded once again that the Son of God did not come to destroy people's lives, but to save them. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's take a moment to silently reflect and allow the Spirit to continue to speak to us this morning. You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com.